You're listening to audio from The Village Church. This teaching is designed to be listened to after having completed the lesson in the workbook. It is not intended to stand alone. You can download the workbook at tvcresources.net. Okay, week nine. We're in 2 Samuel 19 and 20, and last week we saw uh, Absalom. It was so funny uh, after we got, it was a depressing story. I, can I get a witness? But after I walked out into the foyer, one of you came up to me and said, I have to show you the, the gif that we were showing in our group. I, she said, I actually sent it out to my group last week. And it was a, a, a gif of Fabio riding on a horse with the wind flowing through his hair. Uh, I thought that was awesome. Uh, so if Ahithophel is the Judas of the Old Testament, um, then we can say Absalom is the Fabio of the Old, Old Testament. Uh, so a um, little humor and an awful, awful story. So he did get, we saw how he actually ends up being an antichrist in some sense, in the way that he is hung on a tree. Uh, the Old Testament says, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree, and we saw him die as a rebel and uh, die the death of uh, the, the criminal that he was uh, and be buried in a pit uh, heaped with stones and um, looking forward to the day when the true son of David would die a criminal's death in our place. So uh, because David has treated his sons with favor, uh, even to the point that it has, it has just devolved into um, indulgence, just overindulgence. We have seen the sins of the father amplified and the sins of the son. We saw that David, who took Bathsheba and killed Uriah, gives, gives birth to two sons, who, one who will take his sister and rape her, and one who will uh, kill his brother, will murder his brother, and then revolt even against his father himself. And so we had seen David fleeing and he was fleeing this time not Saul, but his own flesh and blood. And at the end of last week's lesson, we saw, do you remember how many people fell in battle when when the whole civil war thing happens? Did you catch that number? 20,000. 20,000 men of Israel lay dead. And so never forget that what we're seeing here is Israel fighting Israel, right? And so when you hear a number like that, it should just really strike you in in the gut. So as a a result of Absalom's rebellion, 20,000 Israelites are dead. And yet when we see David at the end of chapter 18, what is he mourning? The death of one man, the one who is responsible for the deaths of all those other men. I love when I look out and you guys are shaking your heads like, "Mm -mm, no, sir right. Absalom. Let's go. Chapter 19, verse 1. See how Joab feels about it. And guys, listen, keep your eye on Joab. How do you feel about him? Thumbs up? Thumbs down? It's a little hard to say, isn't it? Like, do you know how we have you each week or on the weeks where we have you marking the homework? Like, how did you feel or what do you think each of the the plus minus or uh, neutral? What did you give him? Did you give him? Who gave him a plus? Okay, that's good. We're doing pretty well. Who gave him a minus? Okay, we have some minuses. Who gave him a neutral? Yeah, mostly we're like, we don't know what to do with this guy. Well, we're going to see if we can't reach more of a conclusive verdict on Joab this week. He likes killing guys whose first names start with A. I did pick up on that this week. <laughs> he's a, maybe he's a Southern Baptist because he had three, three murders all associated with the same first letter. So that's a three points and a conclusion. 
All right, chapter 19, verse 1. It's terrible. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. So what's happening? Everybody hears that he's mourning the person who caused all of this great suffering. Think of the enormous loss of sons within Israel, right? And so Joab comes to make his appeal. Verse 3, And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son. We mentioned last week that the reason that David grieves so deeply, is it just to do with the loss of Absalom in battle? No, this is intensely wound up in his own sense of grief and of guilt in relation to Absalom's death. And so rather than bear the sorrows and carry the griefs of his people, instead he bears his own sorrows and carries his own grief. Oh, my son Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son. In verse 5 it says, Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. Did that line jump out at you at all? Because what does Jesus say in the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount? He says that we are to love those who hate us, but he does not say hate those who love you. It says, for you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, that you would be pleased. Joab is such a softy. Verse 7. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Hmm. Did you see what just happened there? Joab says, if you don't go do this thing, no one is going to stay loyal to you. Everyone will defect from your cause. Well, now, what does he think is going to happen? Is the Holy Spirit just going to tell everyone that they ought to leave? By what means would, would David lose the support of all of his men, do you think? Joab. That's right. This is a thinly veiled threat that if you don't go do what I know that you need to do to hold the kingdom together, I'm taking everybody with me. So basically what Joab is saying, and it's what Joab has done all along, is he is showing, I want this kingdom to function with you as its king. But I want this kingdom to function with you as its king according to my terms. Does that sound like anything we ever do? Oh, certainly not. Joab is the bad person in this story. So moving on to verse 8, it says, Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. So we are to understand by the fact that David is sitting in the gate that he is once again ruling. But it is also significant to note that he was sitting in this exact spot when he gave the command that Absalom be treated gently that he be spared. So this is meant to be a bookend statement on the story of Absalom. So let's see what happens next. 
at the end of verse 8, it says, Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So what is Israel doing? They're wondering among themselves and asking among themselves, now that Absalom is dead, how do we bring David back? Because we're starting to remember that he actually was kind of an awesome guy with regard to dealing with the Philistines and delivering us from the hand of our enemies. People are so easily swayed. Verse 11, and King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. So you remember Zadok and Abiathar were kind of his inside guys during the whole thing. And he says, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? So what is David doing here? He goes and he appeals to the tribe of Judah and he says, you guys are my family. Why are you not the ones who are welcoming me back to the throne? But why aren't they the ones who are welcoming him back to the throne? You had this in your homework this week. Why aren't they the ones? Where did Absalom's rebellion begin? It was in Judah. And so if you're the place where Absalom's secret hairdo magic took hold, (laughs) what do you think is likely for you on the other side of the rebellion? that you're going to, that David's going to deal harshly with you. So they obviously hesitate to reach out and extend this offer for David to return to the throne. But what is David doing? David is being very politically astute. He is now doing what we saw him do at the beginning of 2 Samuel once again. He is working to unite a fractured kingdom. And so he starts with Judah as the place of his inroad. He knows that he needs to go to the place that fears retribution the most and win them over. And then their confidence in him will probably open up the way back into the throne. Because remember, it was Judah who anointed him first king. And then it was Israel, the other ten tribes, who anointed him after that. But he's not just going to stop. We're going to see another parallel here to what happened at the beginning of 2 Samuel in verse 13. What does David say next? He says, And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. When you got to that part where you like, oh, dude, I wouldn't, I mean, I, I wouldn't, probably wouldn't do that, Amasa. Why? Because do you remember the last time David did this? So what's he doing? Amasa, whose general was Amasa? He was Absalom's general, right? And so what David is doing is in order to maintain the the strength of his army and the loyalty of the army, he takes the general of the revolt and puts him over the army. This is what he did with Abner. Do you remember? He said to Abner, hey, come come and be the general of the army. And then what happened to Abner? Joab was not super happy with that announcement. And so we had the, the week of shanking people, as uh, Kyle Worley <laughs> dubbed it. And we're going to have yet another shanking today because Joab is a shankopotamus. <laughs> so um, he says, say to Amasa, and Amasa we find is Joab's cousin. Say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. So the original audience would have went, thought, Dun, dun, dun. 
And then verse 14, and he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So David has still got the magic. He is still able to sway the hearts of all Israel. Do you remember how, uh, all of Judah, do you remember how long it took Absalom? Do you remember how patient he was and how he sat there and he told everybody exactly what they wanted to hear? Yet the people come back to David quickly. Why? Because I think they have to know, right? They have to know on some level, he is the man of God's choosing. Their hearts ran after Absalom, but they know David is the man of God's choosing. Verse 15, so the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Crossings of the Jordan, always significant for us to look for in the text. You remember last week we saw sort of that reversal of the book of Joshua with a lot of Joshua imagery as David was leaving, and now we see him coming back over the Jordan, making his approach to Jerusalem once again. And then what we're going to see is some of the people who we saw as David was leaving are going to cross his path, again, this time with a somewhat adapted attitude or with a different story than we heard before. And we're going to find that David is not thinking in terms of, though he thought in terms of personal loss with Absalom, he is now not thinking in terms of personal wounding with regard to the things that happened to him as he was fleeing. He is thinking in terms of what? Unifying a fractured kingdom. And so the way he is going to respond to these people who are going to approach him will have nothing to do with David receiving a proper apology and everything to do with David managing, bringing back together this fractured kingdom. So we'll find that unity is more important than retribution for David. So here he comes, Shimei, first in line. Last week we compared him to an internet troll. And what we're going to find here is what I think is true uh, about internet trolls. This is actually my personal philosophy. When someone is yelling nasty things at me on uh, the internet, um, the first thing I usually do, if I happen to even see it, is look and see how many followers they have. Because if they have 53 followers, it is highly inappropriate for me to say anything negative to them. Why? because I have a bigger platform than they do, and that is bullying, in my opinion. So it's important for those who are, quote, the bigger person in terms of how much support or following they have to quite literally be the bigger person in a situation like that. That person is going to be judged by a different standard of interaction than this person who has only a few people listening to them who is yelling at the top of their lungs. And so that would be Shimei, although we're going to find that he actually had more than just a few people who were listening to him. He's actually someone who David deals carefully with because he does have a fair level of influence, albeit not as much influence as David himself would have. David is able to sway all the hearts of Israel, just by of Judah, and we'll see of Israel, but just by making... A, a statement that he wants to get the band back together. Okay, so verse 16. It says, And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, and we're like, yeah, yeah, we know who he is. You can keep giving the, the, the introduction, but he's the, he's the rock flinger and the dust flinger and the insult flinger. And it says, um, he, he hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. He hurried. Why? He's got to fix some stuff. Verse 17, it says, And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. Oh, okay. 
So you do actually have a fair level of influence here. He is a man of considerable influence. And then we find out that Zeba, who showed up previously, is also someone with some degree of influence. Because what does it say next in verse 17? And Zeba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants. So that means he also has a fair amount of, um, of clout just based on the size of his family and his household. It says he rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And why is Zeba in a hurry? Because he's a big fat liar. So we have an insult hurler and we have a liar and they're in a big hurry to get there to meet the returning king. In verse 18 it says, and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day the first of all the house of Joseph to come down to meet my lord the king. Gosh, that's such a great apology, Shimei. I'm really feeling it. For you. Let's see if David is feeling it. Well, let's see if Abishai is feeling it. Abishai is going to do uh, what he, we have seen him do, these sons of Zuria. He says, Abishai, the son of Zuria, answered, shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? Abishai is still for chopping this guy's head off. <laughs> Verse 22, but David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zuria, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? So what is David articulating here? Who are the sons of Zuria? Who's the other son of Zuria who still is alive? It's Joab, right? And so what did Joab and Abishai, what are they always bent on? Death and bloodshed. They want the expedient answer. And here we hear David express a frustration to Abishai that we've heard him express to him before, but we don't hear him express to Joab. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because it seems like Joab is not just intimidating to his own officers. Seems to be pretty intimidating to David as well. What have I to do with you, you sons of Zuria, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Why an adversary? Because Abishai has failed to judge the moment. This is the moment when we extend grace because we have a greater concern than any personal injury that we have sustained. So he says, Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I do not know that I am, for do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? Israel. And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. So if you remember all the way back to 1 Samuel 11, we had a similar thing done by Saul in the early days of his emerging kingship when there were some worthless men who spoke against him and said, shall this man be king over us? And then he forgave them in the day of his victory over Nahash. And he said, no one will die today. And so in the purpose of uniting the kingdom, David says, let us put an end to the bloodshed. And he forgives Shimei. But if you know the end of the story, you know that on David's deathbed in 1 Kings 2, he tells Solomon, Shimei is a liar and you cannot trust him. And if I were you, I would kill him. And Solomon ends up doing it. So uh, Shimei may have escaped the sword this day, and he may have thought that he has proven to David that he is, in fact, loyal. But David knows exactly what he is doing. So we have someone who is 100% lying who receives 100% grace. 
And then we get to Mephibosheth in verse 24. It says, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. So why are we given this detail about his personal hygiene? What has Mephibosheth done? He is not, we find that he was not able to physically follow after David, which is not a huge surprise to us because we know that he is lame. But when he is basically trapped in Jerusalem as Absalom tries to ascend the throne, what does he do? Does he feign as though he is in support of Absalom to spare his own life? What does he do? He takes on a visible outward sign of grief even though it would have been at great risk to show that he is actually mourning the loss of David as king and identifying with David in his suffering, Mephibosheth still allows himself to go to seed, as we would say, because he is so grieved. Verse 25 says, And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, my Lord, O king, my servant deceived me. His servant is Ziba, right? For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my Lord, the king. But my Lord, the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. What does Mephibosheth mean by this? He means you have wisdom. You make the choice. Do whatever seems good to you. Now, unlike the words of Shimei, do we sense in Mephibosheth any manipulation? No. Verse 28, he says, For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? Man, Mephibosheth is fantastic in this passage. Do you see what he's modeling for us? He is modeling what it looks like to be a true follower of God's chosen king. He is spared from certain death, seated at the king's table. He therefore identifies with the king in his suffering. And he desires nothing but that the king be on his rightful throne. Mephibosheth is a model for us of what it means to be a disciple of Christ, the true king and the true son of David. But look at this interesting thing that happens next. So he says, what further right have I than to cry to the king? So he basically says, I was as good as dead, and you basically raised me to new life and seated me in your presence. It's all good for me. Verse 29, but what was his problem? Do you remember what his problem was? It's not, I mean, he doesn't state it as a problem, but David in his hurried exit out of Jerusalem meets with Ziba, isn't sure how to judge his story, and gives all of Mephibosheth's, see, I have to say his name again, it's not going well, all of Mephibosheth's um, lands and everything that he had received is given to Ziba. So that's where things rest at this point. So verse 29, and the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. Now, when you read that, how did you feel about that? So we had a guy who was 100% guilty who received 100% grace. And now we have a guy who is 100% innocent. What do you want him to receive? 
100% reward, right? Like you want him to get 100% of what he deserves. But David says, I'm going to divide the land. And how does Mephibosheth respond to what, what, what do you want Mephibosheth to say? Dude, I just told you I didn't do anything wrong. Can I have it all back, please? But what does he say? In verse 30, he says, And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. He cares only that David be restored to the throne. But as you were reading this, did it make you think of any other story in in the Old Testament? One that's actually going to be coming up as we get into the book of Kings? David's son Solomon? who's faced with a similarly ambiguous situation, two women come to him, each one claiming that a baby belongs to her. And what does Solomon do? He says, bring me the baby and we'll just divide it in half. And what does it do? It reveals who the true mother of the child is because her motive then emerges immediately. So we don't actually know here whether David hears the words of Mephibosheth and then rewards him with all of the land, but what we do know is that Mephibosheth exonerates himself beautifully by not demanding anything as a reward. Verse 31, so we've had Shimei, we've had Mephibosheth, and now we have Barzillai, the old dude. So we had someone who was 100% guilty and was 100% rewarded, so to speak. Then we had someone who was 100% not guilty, who was 50% rewarded. And now we have someone who is 100% awesome, who is 100% rewarded. Verse 31 says, Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogelim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? i got to say, this is not making me look forward to being 80, by the way. He says, can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? So he's like, I've lost my sense of taste. I can't even hear anymore. It looks like, can I discern what's pleasant is what is not means I can't smell like I used to. He says, why then should your servant be an added burden to my Lord, the king? In verse 36, your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Chimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan and the king went over and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal and Chimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Now, we, we can guess that Chimham is probably the son of Barzillai. It would make sense that that is who he is in the context of the story. Um, we do see someone by the same name emerge later in, in, in the stories of the kings, and so that is a likely thing that he has asked. He said, look, I'm too old for all that stuff that goes on at the court, but let my son come and serve you. 
Here's why I love the story of Barzillai, having just turned 50. He performs what is likely his most significant service to God and to the kingdom of God at the end of his life. At the end of his life. That's really cool to see in here. We have other stories of people who don't finish well. Think about the story of Noah. It was like 300 years after the flood where we see Noah, that, you know, that whole weird story where he lies naked in his tent. We don't have to revisit it, but just think about it for just a minute with me. He gets drunk, he lies naked, his son sees him and mocks him, all that weirdness, and he pronounces a curse, and then we don't hear anything from him again. So whatever the last 300 years of his life contained, there was not anything of noteworthy righteousness to make it into the scriptures. Doesn't mean that it was all downhill from there. But how great would it be to be in the final days of life and to have opportunity to serve the kingdom in a meaningful way? I think it's a good word for those of us who are growing older, and I think it's a good word for those of us who are on the younger side, who might have a tendency to think of old age as a time where people just sort of mark time until the end. Barzillai is pretty great. So what do we see? We see David extending grace to people who should be recipients. Well, that would not be grace. Giving rewards to people who are worthy of them is probably a better way to say it. And then also um, being gracious to people who don't deserve it. And I do want to just point out to you that when we see, see David doing this, that he is uniquely in a position to give grace to someone who does not deserve it because he holds power. And so anytime we talk about extending grace and forgiveness to someone who has acted in what we is arguably, looking at Shimei, who has acted in an abusive manner toward us, we always want to make sure that we're taking into account who holds the balance of power. Because when a person who does not hold the balance of power continually calls what they're doing an extension of grace to someone who holds power over them, but what it actually is, is an avoidance of conflict so that they won't suffer a negative outcome, that is different. And so I do want you to always keep in mind when you hit a question in your homework that says, as we had this week, how can you follow the example of David in giving grace? That what we are never saying is, you should excuse repeated abusive behavior toward you by someone who has power over you. Those are cases in which you should go seek help. But if it's a situation where you are equals, or particularly, as I've been trying to say, if it's a position where you have authority over someone else, then you are in a position, a unique position, to evaluate whether grace isn't the means for a particular situation where another person might demand justice. Good? All right. Verse 41 says, Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away? Come on, kids. Everybody quit fighting. Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, 
we have 10 shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Okay, you big babies. So what's Israel saying? Why do they say, so remember, we're thinking northern and southern, right? So the men of Israel, it says we have 10 shares in the king. What do they mean? How many tribes are there in Israel? Do you know? There's 10, right? So Judah, just this is a little confusing, but this will help you with navigating the Old Testament. You're like, well, if there's 10 in the north and then there's just Judah in the south, how does that equal 12? Did anybody have math problems with that this week? You're like, no, I was just happy to read the text. Leave me alone. In the region where Judah is, is also Simeon, okay? But over time, Simeon ends up sort of just dispersing and intermingling with the people of Judah. They, they, they sort of lose the boundaries of their land allotment, which is actually the fulfillment of a prophecy that was spoken over them. Um, because if you remember, Simeon and Levi were, were terrible uh, after the story of the rape of Dina in, um, in Genesis. And so um, if, you, if you're paying attention, you find that neither Simeon nor Levi end up having a land allotment per se in, uh, in the region of Canaan because Simeon's kind of disperses and because Levi is the line of the priests and so they're dwelling among the people. Okay, little Old Testament mojo for you. So what do we see? We see that they're fighting among themselves right now. Verse 20, what happens when everybody's fighting with each other? Someone decides to do a power grab, and in this case, it's a worthless man by the name of Sheba. It says, now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David. Now, another way to word this, and may have a different translation, it says, we have no share in David, okay? So don't miss what's going on. A Benjaminite would be in Israel, right? So what did the men of Israel just say? We have 10 shares in David. And Judah was like, no, you don't. And so then what does Sheba say? Oh, you know what? We have no share in you. So basically, he's going to build on the antipathy that is already in place. So he says, we have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel, so all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So David continues his progress back to Jerusalem. And when he gets back to Jerusalem, now listen, when he gets back to Jerusalem, we could have heard about any number of activities that take place when he reenters the city. But the author has chosen to place before us immediately one particular situation and to address it. And what is it? It's those ten concubines that you've been worried about this whole time. <laughs> so let's see what it says in verse 3. It says, And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house. And he put them in a house under guard and provided for them. But he did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. We asked you in the homework, why? Why do you think that David did this? But before we get to the why, because sometimes the why that we might come up with has to do a lot with the way that we felt when we read this in the text. How did you feel when you read how David treated these women? Because I think this is an opportunity for us to examine that our feelings about what we read aren't always pointing us to a right conclusion. Because we tend to read this and we're like, what? They were widows? That's sad. 
and he locked him away. They were like prisoners. But actually, what we're seeing here is that David is providing for these women. Uh, Honestly, after what they had been through, I'm guessing they're probably not super sad that they don't have to put up with David showing up all the time, or however often it was that he made his way into the harem. And what he does, basically, because of the purity laws that had been instituted for Israel, he cannot maintain them as part, you could argue he should not have had them in the first place, but he cannot maintain a husband-wife relationship with them because, like it or not, what Absalom has done and what he intended to do was to defile that in a way that this was now the only option left. But he does not cast them off. He does not send them away with a certificate of divorce. He establishes them in a household where some of the commentators even speculate that they would have had honor uh, and would have had a position to to speak into matters at court. And so uh, what we're seeing here is actually the most compassionate treatment that these women could have hoped for at this point in the story. David is finding a way to balance tragedy with a future for these women. Okay, now I do want to circle back to one thing. Throughout the course of this study, we have paid close attention to how the women have fared. And I told you it was an important thing to do because in the book of Judges, that is an indicator to us of how things are going. And as the book goes on, women move from um, places where they are honored to, uh, to just complete uh, degradation by the end of the book. And so we've been paying attention to the women here. And one of the questions that has already emerged several times from you is, does not God care for women? Like you read that story about the way the concubines are treated and you want to know, does he not care for women? And I just want to balance that feeling that you're having as a room full of women with another statistic that I hope you were paying attention to. 20,000 men lay slain in battle. And we have to be careful in a room like this that we don't forget, oh, Okay, we didn't ask the question, does God not care about men? (laughs) So while we want to pay attention to these stories because they're clearly showcased for us, right? Like they're given to us at specific times in the text because they want to tell us something in particular, not to fall into a mindset of being hyper-focused on them in a way that causes us to lose the big picture. This is not just a story where women suffer loss. This is a story where men and women suffer great loss when people do not follow after the Lord. Fair? All right. Verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, called, I'm laughing, I shouldn't laugh, but there's a cheap joke in here that's coming up. Uh, The king said to Amasa, call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So he gives them three days, and how does Amasa do with his assignment? He is late. Amasa is late, and he will soon be the late Amasa. Verse 5, you're welcome. It says, uh, so Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him. Now, we are not told why. It could have been any number of reasons, but, but he doesn't get there within the allotted time. And it's a delicate situation. It needs to be moved upon quickly and shut down. And so what does David do? It says, David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do for us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. So they have this window of time where they really need to strike. Verse 7, and there went out after him Joab's men. Now, that's weird because he said Abishai. 
take some men and go handle this. But then they're described as whose men? Joab's men. So who is it that holds all of the influence in the military? It's Joab. So it says, And there went out after him Joab's men, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother. Now, technically, he's his cousin, but what is he doing? He is giving that familial and warm welcome, and it says, and Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Now, all of that made me a little uncomfortable. I'm like, is he being aggressive? What's going on with the kissing? This would have been a normal sign of greeting. So he grasps him by the beard, brings him in for a nice smoocheroo, and uh, so if he is holding him by the beard with his right hand, then which hand does he use to draw this conveniently falling out knife? His left hand, right? But anyone in the ancient Near East could tell you that it would be expected that your sword arm was your right arm. So does anyone remember um, the story in Judges? Because we're going to start to see some rapid allusions to the book of Judges here in this section. Judges chapter 3, Ehud, one of the earliest judges of Israel, and he, he sneaks into, it's a really graphic story, King Eglon is um, having his um, morning moment, so to speak, and, um, and Ehud surprises him uh, while he is in, in the room reading the newspaper, and um, he pulls out, he surprises him by stabbing him from the left because he was a left-handed man, and so uh, Eglon never sees it coming. And so that's the same thing that we are seeing here. Although Ehud was acting righteously on behalf of Israel, here we see the inverse. We see that um, Joab is being Joab. And so it's not clear whether the knife falls out as part of his plan. It seems like it's possible that he has it in such a way that it will fall forward so that he can easily grab it. But he's got him by the right hand, and just when he's not looking, oh, hello, when he's not looking, he just runs him through, kills him with one strike. Yikes. So it says, he grabbed him by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, but Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. So, I mean, we're not going to get graphic with it, but imagine what kind of a stab wound this must have been, because now we're going to find him lying in the road, and this is what people are walking by and seeing. So it says, then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri, and uh, one of Joab's, so, so how many people ha, has, has um, Joab killed at this point? What are the three A's? He's killed Abner and Absalom and now Amasa. I think there was another one in there too, wasn't there? Basically, don't mess with him. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped 
So there's like rubbernecking. That's really what's happening. And they're supposed to be going where they're going, but he's still, he's this obstacle to Joab because he's this visible representation of how cold-blooded Joab really is. And so it says, and when the man saw that all, pe- all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Why so much time devoted to, to painting this scene for us? Because we should feel the sickness. Are you feeling a sickness in your stomach? That's what you should feel. If we've had any question up to this point, if Joab has remained for us sort of an ambivalent character, we now can look at this and know that is not right. He, he, he rules by brute force and expedience. So then what happens? Well, Sheba is passing through all the tribes of Israel, and he comes to a town called Abel of Beth Makkah, and all the Bichrites assemble and follow him. It says, And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. So if you're a citizen of this town, how are you feeling in this moment? What is happening? Here come all these people after us. But then we find out that there is a wise woman. Now, you may remember we had another wise woman, but that wise woman was actually being played. She was being used to accomplish a particular end that suited Joab. But here we have a woman who is an actual wise woman by many measures. In fact, some of the commentators say that she was probably a prominent judge in the city. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, okay. Now I'm seeing even tighter parallels to the book of Judges because listen to what happens. It says, then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. Now, in Deuteronomy 20.10, there is a law that says that if you are besieging a city, you must first try to make peace with it before you do so. So she's like, hey, can we, can we do that part? She, she's probably appealing to the law. Verse 17, and he came near her, and the woman said, are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is what? A mother in Israel. So this is used in this case to speak of the city itself. But in the book of Judges, it is used to speak of Deborah. Deborah uses it to speak of herself. She says, in a time of chaos, then I arose a mother in Israel says, why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? So she appeals to the worth of the city, and she says, why would you take away something, a a city that has been a blessing to Israel? And listen to Joab's response. And so we had a a pointing back to Judges 3 and the story of Ehud, and now we hear echoes of Judges 5 and the story of Deborah. And then Joab responds in verse 20. Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy... Dude, you just... He says, that is not true. Yeah, it's totally true. He says, but a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba the son of Bichri has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom and they cut off the head of Sheba the son of Bichri and threw it out to Joab. 
So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. So now, just in case you have, um, have missed previous discussions of this, why chop off the head just for extra effect? No, it's proof, right? This is, we can't, you can't like take a picture and, and airdrop it. Uh, there has to be a visible way to show that what needed to be done has happened, and that is, here's his face. And so they lob his head over the wall. Now, um, think back to Judges, those of you who are familiar with the story, because we've actually, when we looked at the last wise woman, we talked about this parallel here. Um, the story of Abimelech, the son of Gideon, and a concubine, and how he stages a revolt, and there's this woman who throws an upper millstone over a wall and squashes him like a bug. And so we're seeing now echoes of Judges 8 here. This time we see another city spared by a woman who was in the right place at the right time. I mean, this woman is fantastic. In fact, that woman in Judges is fantastic too. Don't you wish you knew her name? But she's not named here. She's not named here. But her faithfulness is given here. This is one of the many examples of people in the Bible who are unnamed and who are shown to be faithful. And they can always be a reminder to us in a day and time where we want our name to be known and we want our faces to be recognizable. I say a day and time. It's always been thus. That for most of us, we will live out the great calling to be faithful and forgotten. Verse 23. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was in command of the Terathites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat the son of Ahalud was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. So why? Why this listing here at the end? You may remember we had one earlier in the text when David comes to the throne. What is being articulated here? Order is restored. But it's not necessarily any form of order that is going to give us a great deal of comfort because who is the first person who's mentioned in the list? Joab is in command of all of the army of Israel. Joab rules with an iron fist. Joab is loyal to David, but he is not obedient. He is expedient. He, in effect, uses David to leverage his own forms of power. Why is this important for us? Because Joab is probably a pretty accurate picture of who Jesus has in mind, the kind of person Jesus has in mind when he says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Now, what Jesus is saying is that there are those among the family of God who present themselves as genuine members of it, but are actually not of it at all. So 
does that mean that we read that and as believers we say, oh, that's good to make note of. I'll keep my eye out for Joab's. Yes, I think that that is one way that we should take this. But there's also a tension that's maintained throughout the scriptures that the warnings about those who are lost are also warnings that those who are saved should pay attention to. So that we do not take on any element of belief or practice or thought that is reflective of the mentality of Joab. It can be common even among believers to want to serve God only for what power or sense of worth it gives to us. It can be common even among the genuine followers of God to want God's stuff more than we want God himself. And so Joab is a warning to you and me that we should flee from anything that looks like leveraging our relationship to the God of the universe to elevate ourselves. And instead, whose example in this week should we look to? Mephibosheth. Doesn't even have Joab's running all over the place doing whatever he thinks is the most important thing to do. Mephibosheth does not even have the resources to remove himself from harm's way when harm's way moves into the neighborhood. And yet he faithfully bears the image of the one he serves, identifies with the king in his suffering, and makes no claim to what the king has to offer, is content only to know that he is accepted and has been given a seat at the table. My prayer for us is that the heart of Mephibosheth would live in each of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Mephibosheth, who, though he was lame and could not walk, walked more faithfully than anyone else in the whole story. Lord, may we be found to be like him. And Lord, we confess to you that this story leaves us disappointed. It leaves us without a sense of closure. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to see it in light of the whole story. Give us hearts that hope for the return of Christ. Give us hearts that when we look, along, look around and see that Joab's multiply and Mephibosheth's seem to grow few, that you persevere your kingdom that even when the children of God are so busy fighting among themselves that they are forgetful of the mission, that the mission goes forward, that you work in spite of us when you must, but also through us when we submit ourselves to your rule. Lord, may we be found submissive and grateful and faithful to the end. And we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.